Hey everybody, it's Dr. Colman Noctor here, and it's a real pleasure to have you back for episode two of season two, and it's the listeners' questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Catherine Sharkey, who you might remember from season one, and we've some really great questions in this week, talking about, you know, managing parenting from work, working from home, and all the challenges that people are trying to struggle with at the moment. So it's a really good episode with lots of questions that I think are really appropriate to the struggles that we're having at the time. And if you have any questions that you want answered, you can get them into us on askingforaparent.gmail.com or through the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. I just hope that everyone is doing okay. These are really challenging times, and you know, I hope you're finding these episodes maybe a little bit of a bit of a better direction, perhaps even some insight, and hopefully a little bit entertaining. So, if you're about to head off on your hundred days of walking, or if you're you know listening to this in the background as you're trying to prepare your schoolwork for tomorrow or even just catching up on some work that you didn't get to do today i hope you enjoy this episode hey everybody and welcome back to episode two of season two of the asking for a parent podcast it's me dr coleman doctor and it's a great pleasure to get back and chat to you again and many thanks for everyone who's after getting in touch with us about our last week's episode uh dervil o'rourke was a really popular guest we got some fantastic feedback on twitter facebook instagram and even through text messages that people really really enjoyed that episode and I wanted to say a special thank you to Derville for giving her time and uh, her insights and, and really entertaining hour. If you haven't heard it, I would recommend you all go back and listen to it. So this week is our listeners' questions episode. And as we know, this season, we're going to be doing one episode a week. So it'll be one parenting interview and then one listener's question. So uh, this week, uh, I'm very grateful to my sister, Catherine Sharkey, for coming back on. You heard her last season in season one uh, for a listener's questions episode and she kindly has given her time again today to come back and, and ask your questions on your behalf and maybe tease out some of the questions or answers that I give to make sure that we're being thorough and that uh, we hear two voices in this discussion. So without further ado, I'll introduce you back to, to Catherine, my sister. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, yeah. Uh, back back in, the, in lockdown again. So it's like repeat, re- rinse and repeat, but... Um, in some ways, I think we know the drill, so we um, we're kind of more familiar with it, which makes it a little bit easier. And then in other ways, makes it more difficult because the first time is easier. I think it's little more interesting. I suppose it's just it's it's an endurance, pretty much. I think now. Yeah, I think the novelty piece is most certainly gone at this point, but it's kind of a really weird place to be at the moment because we have this kind of hope of the vaccines, yet the numbers have never been higher. So I think it's a uh, a really challenging time to get your head around it at the moment because we kind of feel different things a lot of the time and maybe ambivalence is where we're sitting at at the moment but in light of that and uh, you know first and foremost a, a big shout out to our frontline workers who are doing a fantastic job at the moment and and to everyone else and and I would like to say I think our children have been maybe the unsung heroes in this as well I mean we've asked them to stay in again um, we've asked them to not do their sport not see their pals Another big ask of children, but from the stories I'm hearing, a majority of young people are taking it in their stride and doing it incredibly well. So a, a big shout out to them as well. But we have had a few questions, Catherine, have come in, some around lockdowns and COVIDs and others more generic things. So where will we start today? First question is, I suppose, COVID related. A single parent looking for to know how, how we just suggest that they get some me time during the pandemic. So they're obviously at home alone with the children during the, uh, the week. Uh, every second weekend, the kids go to their dad, but that's the time to kind of catch up on the housework. So this person is just wondering with three kids age 9, 12 and 19, how do they get some me time while single parenting during a pandemic? That's a really good question, a really difficult answer as well, because I think there's another weird experience at the moment where we've never been more disconnected from the outside world and our communities, but there's also a need for some alone time, which is odd. You know, when we feel so lonely and disconnected, you also need your own time within your own bubble. And I think that's been really hard because I think there is, we're, we're very proximal at the moment. There's people very close to us all the time. And even to try and get a 10 minute walk in or to try and get some time uh, that has proven very difficult uh, and, and proven challenging for people. So this is not an easy answer. But what I would say is there's a, a famous fable and it, it holds some truth in it. It's called the parenting triangle. And there, if you imagine three points on the triangle being that you can have a clean house, happy children 
and your own sanity. But you can only pick two of those at one time. You can't do all three. So you must sacrifice one. And I think most people at the moment would be sacrificing the clean house piece. I think from the point of view of we need to put ourselves first. The the, the great line, physician, heal thyself. You are no use to anyone if you are shattered and exhausted within yourself. And I think at a time, at, at the moment, it feels kind of indulgent or, you know, uh, a little bit self-centered to be trying to think about ourselves. But as a, a single mom who has three children at home, you can't give of yourself all the time. There needs to be a moment in time where you do something for yourself. And and look, I'm not saying that there's one size fits all. And I'm, I'm absolutely saying that a lot of the things that we would normally do to keep ourselves mentally fit, we can't do this at the moment. And, you know, this suggestion about going for a walk seems to be you know the only coping skill that we can think of. But there are other people who would maybe get something from mindfulness or meditation or even just some time alone that they're not maybe parenting and they're not working and they're not cleaning their own house or, or taking after tasks. And I would say structure is key here. I think this lady needs to prioritize her own time uh, and to try and manage that. I think she did say that she has uh, an older child at home, maybe one is 19. So maybe they could look after some of the kind of duties. I think the in this together piece is really important through something like COVID. And it means, yes, both communities and families. I think we have to be in it together as well. And, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. And I would really try and encourage the young people to try and get on board to see their own role in, you know, maybe taking care stock of their own belongings, maybe managing things a little bit better. And I think it's okay for a kind of a call to arms that people, you know, do row in around that and realizing that it is a challenging time. But what I would say for this mom is structure the time, have a set time either once a day or once every second day uh, that you do something for yourself. And whether that's a walk, a bath, meditation, whatever it might be, it's so important that you do prioritize that. But I think what you do is you have to announce it and say, this is the time that I won't be available. This is the time for me. And you have to prioritize it and structure it. And, you know, when you're not available, you're not available for the mom tasks that might be asked. And that's when you might get your older child to maybe step into that role, even temporarily for an hour or two. But I would say to you, this is really important. This is, as we said in the opening, this is an act of endurance and you need to be able to, to look after yourself in order to be able to endure it. Uh, otherwise, you will go to the wire and, you know, you'll start to, you know, you know, tiredness and fatigue and stress, are, they all compromise our immunity as well. So it is really important during all of this that we try and manage ourselves as best. And I'm hearing this woman say that's easier said than done as I give this answer, but it's the only thing that you can do at the moment is to try and prioritize, put yourself somewhere up that hierarchy of needs in order to maintain yourself. And, you know, oftentimes the things we need to do most are the things that we sacrifice first. And, you know, for this lady, I would say to her, try and create the culture that on Thursday at seven o'clock till eight, mum does her thing. And maybe that's repeated on Tuesday and maybe repeated on Saturday. And look, if the house isn't spotless, everyone's safe, everyone's loved, and you'll get through it. Uh, and I'd prefer to see, you know, you in an untidy house with your mental well-being in intact than the opposite way around. So remember your parenting triangle. You have to sacrifice one, your sanity, happy children, or a clean house. And I know at the moment which one I think I'd be advocating to sacrifice. Does that make sense, Catherine? Yeah, I think, uh, I suppose I find, I never thought I'd miss a commute, but it's that space and that bit of time on your own in the car sometimes that, you know, whereas now you're walking out of the your workspace into your kitchen in two minutes and there's no break and there's no kind of time to yourself. Whereas it's funny, the, the commute kind of gives you that and you I never appreciated it, but now I suppose that you don't have it, you kind of go, it's, but I think it's probably the permission to have your own time. Because the commute is something you have to do, whereas now you have to actually make the space and say, right, I'm, you know, I'm walking out of the office, but I'm going to go and do something for myself for 20 minutes and then you can have me. But um, yeah, it's just. It is brilliant. I mean, we all give out about traffic and we all give out about log jams and things like that. But I suppose being a, a kind of law abiding citizen, you wouldn't be distracted in the car. You might be listening to radio, you listen to listen to music, but it is time for you. You wouldn't be working or answering emails or making wheatos for children while you're doing it. So from the point of view, it is an important gap space in the day that we have lost through all of this. And I would agree with you. I, I, yeah. I never thought I would miss the beam of red lights in, in a traffic jam. But yeah, I take it at the moment, I think. But yeah, it's that permission piece. It's saying to yourself, 
I have, you know, it's okay for me to take 20 minutes. That's sometimes hard to do. Yeah. And give yourself the permission. I think that's it. You know, I mean, if it's forced upon us like a commute, there's a feeling that there's nothing we can do. So I'll use this time. But in the instance of, of this lady, it is that she has to carve out that permission. And there's no point, you know, you can't relax while feeling guilty. So there's no point in you lying up in your room trying to do some meditation, being absolutely bothered about what your children are doing downstairs. You know, the the, the Sunday morning lie-in, you know, if that's just lying awake with one ear open to sit, trying to interpret what that noise was, you're not getting much rest from it. So there is a, a point to, to making that time and give, as you say, the permission. Absolutely give yourself a, a license to it and see a benefit in it. This is about endurance and you won't be able to last the time unless you mind yourself. And I think that goes really for everyone out there, to be honest. So I hope you find that helpful. Uh, what other questions came in? Okay, the next one I'd say is something that's a, a very common piece in households where someone's doing a leaving cert. So this lady is saying that she's found that the podcast has been a real help and given a lot of useful tips. And she's asking about her son doing his leaving cert this year, who's in an awful state. There's a comment that a good kid wants to do well, but has to work for it and is working for it and is killing himself and really exhausted. Um, he's in his room working all the time. And is just very, very concerned about this and feels that maybe he's not getting enough work from teachers. So seems to be kind of creating it for himself and very stressed. Yeah, I think this is something that's really common. I've heard lots of this recently. And it is that group that were fifth years in 2020 and sixth years now have really got a raw deal here because from last March until June, they lost out on their the end of their fifth year curriculum. And we brought this up in the in last season when they went back in September, there was this kind of onslaught of work to try and make up for the curriculum that had been missed. Many of the parents and young people who I saw last year who were now in that leaving cert cycle in sixth year were saying they were absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of work that was going on. And maybe there was an idea that teachers anticipated that this might happen again. And so they were kind of in that window of time from September to, to Christmas, really piling it on. And this this group are now again left in this limbo of will this be, you know, estimated grades or will it be uh, will they do their leaving cert? There's a, still a huge amount of uncertainty around that. And I can understand making a call back now is difficult to do because we can't prophesize what's going to happen. But for these young people, the uncertainty is overwhelming. And again, it's the conscientious kid who's really going to suffer around. Uh, you know, and I've heard this said so many times that the children who were conscientious, who were very involved in their communities and sports and groups and everything else, they're the ones that are almost finding the COVID piece harder because they've had so many things taken from them. But this lad, uh, mum says he works hard, he's conscientious, he wants to do well. So the drive is going to be there, but maybe the direction and support isn't. And I think the this time around, there is a lack of uniformity in terms of what schools and and uh, and teachers are providing for students. Some people getting quite a lot of support, others not so much. And I do think it is something that many students and parents are struggling with. In terms of trying to help him, I mean, I think just trying to contain the situation as much as you can. And a bit like the previous question, in kind of encouraging him to mind himself a little bit in this, because if he does kind of overstress and get overly fatigued come June, whether it be an exam or graduated or estimated grades, he, he'll be exhausted and fatigued and it won't help him in the long run. And it's again, trying to, to use those phrases of it. It's a marathon, not a sprint and trying to, to spare him in it and maybe trying to get him out for those walks or trying to get him to take those breaks or trying to, you know, and maybe reach out to the teachers and, and see if the levels of support that he's getting is enough. You know, giving lots of work isn't the same as giving support. You know, giving, and I've heard lots of, of parents of, of maybe primary school teachers who, you know, they get overwhelmed by people just sending them links to online resources. Oh, you should try this, you should try this, you should try this. And although those links may indeed be helpful, getting 20 of them in your WhatsApp group, you know, while you're trying to work at the same time is really overwhelming. So support is not always about throwing resources at people. It's maybe about listening to what he has to say and, and maybe reassuring him a little bit around that. There's lots of young people who maybe were in receipt of grinds and things who are not getting that at the moment as well. And so I think you just accept the lousiness of it. This is rough for that year. And the, the six years of, of 2021, have had a raw deal similar to to last year's. Uh, I think, as I said before, there's a few cohorts who maybe been disenfranchised more than others, and this group will be one of them. I think you just kind of, you know, acknowledge the difficulty that it is, try and get him to manage his stress levels as well as his work levels as best you can, and just empathize with him around it. 
and scaffold in whatever way that you can help him. But at the moment, he's probably not going to see the benefit in taking a break. And you really need to sell that for him. Um, and again, the idea that, you know, he still has time. This is not it's not imminent in terms of, you know, and I think around this time, maybe mocks and things were being done or just over, whatever the case may be. The anxiety is high uh, for all these young people in terms of the Christmas exams, etc. So I just think reach out, arm around the shoulder, try and, you know, put things in context and perspective uh, and try and manage his anxiety and just really prioritize his well-being uh, as much as you prioritize whatever points he gets at the end of this uh, really difficult task. But um, yeah, I would be supporting him, containing him, structuring some breaks and trying to, yeah, just try and get some balance back. There's a real difficulty for that group. They've uh, they've had a really tough couple of years. They're, they're, they're on the second year of the difficulty. Yeah, and I, I think there's another like the junior infants group who maybe had three months or of classes and then they were taken out. And then this year, the senior infants, they've had three or four months and they're gone again. Like my youngest lad is in senior infants at the moment and looks like he might get to first class with probably six months of school in terms of a consistent run. The six classers who went into first year who were trying to find their feet in first year, have they've suffered a, a big loss. They lost the end of sixth year now kind of only getting their, their feet wet in first year and they'll find themselves in second year before long. So, yeah, there's this has been a real disruption for young people and a real disruption to their development. And we always said, you know, the longer this goes on, the more impact it will have. So really the rollout of vaccines and things like that is pertinent. It is important that we get that back to normal as soon as possible. Uh, but yeah, just arm around the shoulder, lots of support and trying to uh, kind of acknowledge the lousiness of it. I think that's probably... Uh, as supportive as we can be at the moment. The next question is from someone with a 17-year-old daughter who's recently developed panic attacks. Um, tended to happen more when at school, but they're still happening now. GP, they've been to the GP who's prescribed Xanax, but they really don't want to be relying on these. And then when they've reached out to try and get services and therapy, they're not able to get it because of COVID and the capacity issue. So they're just trying to figure out, is there any way of, of helping her, supporting her better? Um, and the comment is, we're at sea with this and don't know how to help her. Yeah, it's a really common but really difficult situation. Panic attacks are very interesting in the sense that um, they can oftentimes happen out of the blue. They don't tend to happen as a result of an obvious or clear stimulus or stressor. So this the idea of panic attack can be seen very much in first and foremost as something biological. So it's a, a sensation that you start to feel. And oftentimes it's palpitations, feeling sweaty, feeling shortness of breath. So very much like the, the feeling of panic that you would perhaps, uh, you know, and again, it's important to say that anxiety is, is functional. So when we get sweaty palms, our pupils dilate and our, our hearts pump faster, that is goes back to our kind of primitive days when we would have been in the jungle and you were faced with a bear. And, you know, you sweaty makes you harder to grab. Your peripheral vision makes you more alert and your palpitations runs your bloodstream to your extremities so that you can run faster from the bear. So all of these reactions are kind of understandable from a, an infrastructure or an anatomical point of view. But they don't make sense if you're just sitting there on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of religion class and you start to get this sort of experience. So the what happens then is so you have this biological feeling of the palpitations, the shortness of breath, and then cognitively you start to think anxious thoughts on top of them. So you go, oh, my God, I'm going to faint or I'm going to collapse. Or I'm going to have a heart attack. And what that does is it makes the the kind of adrenaline running through your system be released more. So now you're starting to feel more and more panicky. So the more you think about it, the more you fuel that kind of sensation or that visceral, biological, physical sensation, creating kind of more panic and more panic to the point where many people have ended up in ambulances and heading to A&Es with kind of people thinking they're having heart attacks and seizures, etc. And the, the real trick around managing panic attack is to try and manage the cognitive piece. So that biological, if you can imagine your brain just misfires and it show, throws off a kind of a, an adrenaline in your system that creates anxiety and you have these physiological symptoms. And it's back to the old adage of, I've got this, I know what it is, it will pass. And if you breathe through it and don't add any fuel to that fire, the anxiety will work through your system and work its way out. And I've 
been able to help young people over the years kind of manage that within kind of a minute and a half where this would kind of come, it would manage and it would pass. And the key is just not to add the cognitive fuel, not to add the catastrophic thoughts, not to add the kind of sensationalization of I'm going to collapse in the canteen, everyone's going to know me as, you know, collapsing Coleman and there's going to be ambulances. All those thoughts that you think you're going to have create more and more and more of the adrenaline to be released into the system. And I think she mentioned there was kind of medication that she was offered. So something like a benzodiazepine would be a drug that would kind of counteract that, but not something advisable because what it does is it creates kind of a reliance or dependency on that and you don't ever develop that kind of cognitive skill to manage the panic attack. So the best thing I would do, I think the best thing you can do with any young person who's 17 year old is to try and explain to her or even show this clip back to her that this is what this is. So this is very normative. It's very common and lots of people have it. And the key issue here is trying to be able to get on top of not adding the kind of worry thought fuel to the fire. It's about trying to really manage your thinking so that it just becomes something that happens and passes rather than something that exacerbates and gets worse. So I got this, I'll breathe through it, this will pass, I know what this is, and hopefully, you, and you have to practice that. This is like kind of psychological physio, this is something you have to keep doing the stretches for, and you get, the panic attack might last 20 minutes now, then about 15 minutes, then about 10 minutes, and the better you get at managing the cognitive fuel, the better you get at managing panic attack. And again, I would maybe, yeah, look, get her to sit down and listen to this clip with you. And maybe there's something in this explanation that might help her to be able to manage it in the first instance. But your issue about not being able to access therapy is a real common one. I, I've, as I say, I've never had more emails and phone calls from people looking for support. And, and even people who are in private practice are overwhelmed with the amount of demand that's there at the moment. So it is really, really difficult. And that was one of the reasons why we decided to do the podcast in the first place was to try and maybe offer this resource to people who maybe couldn't get that one-to-one -one support during the COVID time. So again, I hope that's helpful. I would sit down with her and, and go through it. It's something I've thought about maybe doing some maybe self-help podcasts or videos around various kind of techniques that people can do to manage something like panic attack or something specific. And it's maybe when we get through this podcast, we might put think about that as the next series. But for now, it's really about understanding what the panic attack is, understanding, again, more importantly, what it's not, and then trying to manage the thoughts and sensational and catastrophizing kind of influence that might go with that. And uh, I wish her well with that. I hope that that works out. And I hope you may be able to access services pretty soon because I think this is not around forever. Things will settle down and we will get back to to kind of the, the normal services resuming in terms of mental health services. But yeah, I just wish them well with that. Yeah, and I think maybe something like that, as you say, because it's always difficult to get any children to listen to their own parents. So sometimes something like a video or some kind of a, an external advice is always, and if you can't access it on a face-to-face -face basis, maybe some kind of a video piece is, is useful just to get them to look at it. And it means that it's not their parents telling them something which often gets ignored. Yeah, it's often not what's said, but who's saying it that has the impact. But uh, yeah, so that maybe sit down with your daughter and, and listen to this clip of the, the podcast and see how she gets on with it. But yeah, I wish them well. The next question, again, I'd say is probably something that a lot of people are experiencing at the moment. A mother uh, with two children, eight-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son who's working from home with a husband who's an essential worker and was gone, obviously, all day to work and trying to juggle homeschool and their own work. And similar to what you'd said earlier, teachers sending out websites and links and videos of what to do with the children, but not having enough time to do it. And then feeling that they're not doing their work as well. Um, I think the comment is I'm massively underperforming and I'm, my boss is becoming impatient. And also that the children are losing out. So it's somebody who's trying to, to balance everyone, everything and feeling that they're not achieving anything. I think probably... Not too uncommon at the moment, but they're looking for some advice. Yeah, I think it goes back to the idea of, you know, we're not working from home. We're parenting from work. And it is inevitable that your performance as both a parent and an employee will be affected by that. And I just think we need to get rid of this nonsense about multitasking. It is not something we cannot parent homeschool and work at the same level that we would normally. And again, I hear this so many times, people working till one and two in the morning trying to catch up on work emails that they didn't get to during the day because of various things that were happening. The working from home issue, less structure becomes less boundaries. So you're much more likely to overwork to try and manage that. And I really feel for this person. I mean, 
being in a job where you are trying to do your best and you're trying to impress and you're, you're conscientious and you don't want to be seen as a slacker or whatever the case may be, there simply is not enough currency or time in the day for us to be able to do all of these things. There's nothing more deflating than feeling you're failing as a parent and you, you know, you see your children are kind of living off snacks and, you know, haven't got out of their pajamas and it's half 12 and everything else that's going on. Just be reassured that this is happening in many, 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 many homes around the country and you're not on your own. I know that doesn't cushion the blow as much as you can, but I, I would feel that there would need to be some appeal to employers to have some compassion to the levels of stress that people are under. I, as someone who, who started a new job in September, I really feel that, you know, had this been in a normal time, I would have, you know, be feeling a lot more integrated than I am now, you know, trying to work remotely, trying to, and you are trying to impress, you're trying to do everything, you're not trying to, you, you don't want to say no to anyone because you're still kind of new in the job, or you're, you're just maybe that type of a person. But from the point of view of, it's your own expectations and standards are things that are going to make you feel worse about it. And I really, really do think we need to manage our expectations at this time. This is survival. This is, you know, and somebody rightly pointed out, maybe it's not homeschooling, but it's emergency education. And from the point of view of emergency education might be, you know, half an hour a day. If that's all that you can manage, that's all that you can manage. I would certainly just relieve yourself of the pressure to be all things to all people. And I really, again, go back to kind of trying to mind yourself in this one, because this is, if you're working, you know, 16 hours a day and you're trying to keep everyone happy and keep all those plates spinning, uh, this is, it'll take its toll on you, you know, psychologically and emotionally. And you really need to, to prioritize yourself a little bit in this, but really hard to try and do this on your own at home. I really, really feel for, for people who are maybe single parents or people who like that, who have partners who are essential workers and are gone all day. For me, the homeschooling piece is the piece that has to be sacrificed first. This is not an academic pandemic. It's a physiological one. Uh, I would be fairly sure that no matter what happens, our great teachers will pick up and, and, and kind of pick, our children will catch up again uh, as, as they, you know, it's a, it's a blip in their lives in terms of the, the, the grander scheme of things. But from the point of view of your own mental well-being, your children's safety and your own containment, then your job and your homeschooling would come in that list of order. And I think maybe managing your expectations of trying to keep all those things at 100 percent is probably the best thing that I can say to you at the moment. But just to say I empathize with it, I feel that's that ladies, uh, I feel her pain in that because I think yeah. there's many of us who feel we're, we're failing at a lot of things. And maybe you're not failing everything, as I say, maybe you're surviving everything. And uh, just important to give yourself a bit of leeway and leniency on that one, I think. Yeah, and I think that comment as well, you know, I suppose my role in, in my work as well in HR is that I think if people, there is an understanding generally that like there, this isn't this isn't normal. And I think if you go and talk to your employer, if you're in that situation, and, you know, the comment that they're they're underperforming massively, I wouldn't imagine that that's actually the perception at all. But unless you have the conversation and try and work out something that'll that'll suit everybody or try and work around it. Most employers will try and work with you, I think, at the moment. It's an exceptional time. Can I ask you a question, Catherine? And again, it maybe points to your own expertise, but you know when you're working from home, and let's say, for example, like I'm a real morning person, so I get up and I work from six to eight before the kids get up, and that's when I get my bits of work done, right? And let's imagine that you're working with me for whatever reason we need to communicate, but you're a more night person. So you get your kids off to bed at 10 o'clock and from 10 till 1 a.m. is when you do your greatest work. The difficulty there is that I'm flinging emails at you when you're in bed and you're flinging emails at me when I'm in bed. And the temptation then is to say, well, I'll just work from 6 till 1 a.m. because I'll need to have my laptop open or I'll need to have my phone open for those emails because... You know, without a nine to five structure, it is we're free to kind of work for in whatever way that we want. I, I'm guessing there's no real way around that, is there? Or is there is communication? That yeah, it's the communication piece. So, you know, I, I've seen a lot of emails with the footer on them at the moment going, I'm working this way because it suits me, but I don't expect you to answer me at this moment. You know, so it, it, it's that communication piece going you know, if two people are working alongside each other and understand that they're actually, they work best at different times or it suits them from their own perspective at home to work in completely different ways, what they've got to understand is that you may send an email at six o'clock in the morning, you won't get an answer maybe till 10 o'clock at night when that person is on and not to expect it and the other person to know that you're not expecting it. So I think it's about everybody 
knowing what the other people are doing. Once you understand it and you know you're going to get an answer and you know that person is going to come back to you, I don't think anybody minds. It's the piece of the pressure everybody puts on themselves to instantly answer and always on. Um, And all of this legislation that's coming now about the right to disconnect and all that kind of thing is just going to put a little bit more structure on it. But I think if at least you, it's again, it's communicating with everybody around you to say, I, I, it suits me at the moment to work these hours. They may be not normal working hours and I don't expect you to come back to me. You come back to me when, when you're on and you're working. Um, And maybe it takes a little bit longer to get things moved on, but at least it allows people that, um, that that ability to turn off and switch off for a period of time every day. And so there is meaning in that little footer at the end of the email. That's not just a, a kind of a, a pro forma thing that everyone just has to put in. Do we feel that that is adhered to or people get it? I think it depends on the culture in every in every workplace. So, you know, it's about creating that culture in a workplace that and, and it's so new and fresh to everybody, you know, a place where everybody came in and it depends on the role as well you know there's some roles if you're working a customer service role where your hours are nine to five you've no choice but to be on the phones nine to five answering the calls so some people are stuck with that and I feel for them particularly if they're at home with kids they can't be flexible so they're stuck with that and then you have other people who can be flexible and can dip in and out of work over the day when it suits them but I think it's that piece of of having a conversation with your colleagues or people that you're working with to make them understand that you're putting the errors in a, in a particular way and that um, so that there's no perception that, oh, you know, they're never, they never come back to me or um, that pressure is taken off you, I think, as well. But it's, it is, it, it's something we're all learning and it's very new. You know, it, it, we're a year into this almost now, but there's always been the perspective of, oh, we're coming back you know, we went out in March, we considered definitely we'd be back by the end of the summer, we got back for a couple of weeks, and then we were gone out again. So it, it, it's a learning for everybody. But I think it's culture and understanding and conversations is the thing that has to happen to allow people to work more flexibly. And every workplace is different. Mm. Yeah, no, it's interesting, because I think the temptation is to kind of leave your emails on your phone and, you know, leave them on all the time and answer them whenever they come in. And I think in some ways that manages your anxiety because you don't feel that you're missing anything, that there's not anything on your laptop that, you know, that's really urgent and you need to get to. But then you're kind of on call all the time. So there's this kind of sense of there's no on or off or there's no start or end to the day. You're just there all the time. And I think that is tricky. I think that we're, we're, we're still novices at getting used to that culture, I think. And, and maybe because it came under such kind of emergency circumstances, it wasn't necessarily something we built up to. There wasn't a, you know, a series of training for home, uh, home working and all that sort of stuff. It was kind of thrust upon us. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that culture of understanding and, you know, maybe a less demanding culture or, you know, something about that, yeah, that creates some kind of a mutual understanding of each other's circumstances being different. Yeah, it is. It seems to be the way to go. Uh, but no doubt about it, where we're working from home seems to have many benefits. There are, you know, we've just mentioned a few already, not having the commute, not having the structure, you know, being on call all the time, managing different homeschooling demands, everything else. It, I would think it's not everything that it's cracked up to be. I think probably people who are going in are kind of seeing working from home as something to be envious of. I just know personally, I would, I can't wait to get back to the on-site working I find it a lonely way to to live your life um, and maybe not the most mentally healthy. But then again, I have people and friends who I know who never want to go back to the office and love it. So, yeah, I think different strokes for different folks. But, yeah, it's a real challenge. Uh, Any other questions there? Uh, Yeah, next one, which is something completely different. Somebody who found the Dervler Work uh, podcast extremely uh, good and gave them food to talk because they have a very competitive seven-year-old girl and, and seemed to find it very helpful but and, and their question is about their son who's five and a half and doesn't want to to wrap up or wear warm clothes on a cold day lives for the last two winters in shorts and t-shirts and this person seemed to feel that the drive behind it is kind of about being brave and being the hard man you know not not giving in maybe that's something that's been said and that the little fella seems to enjoy being considered oh you know you're great aren't you You don't even feel the cold but they're struggling to get him to wrap up and actually put enough clothes on to stay warm and outside in the winter and so an interesting one 
This is really interesting. I mean, I think from the point of view of, uh, yeah, and I, I think it, I've struggled with my own lad trying to get him to wear non-shorts for the last while. And I think, Catherine, you might have somebody who likes the, the shorts and T-shirt way of living as well. So not necessarily coming from a position where I've actually mastered this. I think the, the five and a half seems very young to have had that level of a social construction that he has to live out a certain identity. I think he seems very young for that, but maybe young enough to think that that's something important. I mean, the, the amazing thing is about this is most of these children who we worry about who don't you know, wear enough clothes tend to not get pneumonia all that much. They tend to be able to have some sort of natural resilience to it. So I wouldn't make too much of an issue of it. I think this is like a bit, a bit like food. I think when mealtimes, when we make this massive issue about food, we create issues where, where they may not be there. That said, I, I mean, I don't think you want to be the, the parent who looks like they're neglecting their child as they're you know training on their astro pitch in shorts and t-shirts when everyone's wrapped up to the eyeballs with scarves and woolly hats. But I mean, I think I would probably try and, and work towards getting him to see that there's a need to be comfortable and that you perform better when you're comfortable and you can't, you know, play football as well as you can when you're cold. And that, you know, just because the lads say, oh, you're a great man because you're only wearing a T-shirt and shorts and it's minus four degrees, you know, trying to see that that's fairly short lived gratification in that and that, you know, that there's not much to that uh, as in terms of credibility. But this is a tricky one. I, I don't know where I would go with this. I think I would, within reason, manage it. But I, I, I would worry about sending a child out in a shorts and T-shirt in minus, you know, degrees. I think there is uh, an element of that. And if he doesn't wear... And some of the things I might, you know, move towards is maybe Under Armour or something a bit cooler that, you know, that, that might still allow him. Some children, small children who, especially around football and things like that, they really want to wear the jersey. So the jersey of the Messi or, you know, Ronaldo jersey, whatever it is that they're wearing, they want that to be seen. So the jacket over that kind of def defies the point of going out in your gear. So oftentimes what you do is you, you underlayer. So you warm them up from underneath out. And so they could be wearing jackets with a Ronaldo jersey over the top of it or something. But from the point of view of it's to try and see what that's about. But I would try and sell the idea of the Under Armour and stuff like that and show them pictures of maybe heroes of theirs who do wear, you know, skins, like second skins or leggings or whatever the case may be. I always remember in my own youth, uh, John Barnes used to wear leggings and gloves who was a Liverpool footballer and, you know, it kind of made it okay for everyone to wear them once he was wearing them. So, yeah, I think you probably have to be creative around that. I, I mean, I wouldn't get highly head up about it. I think the bigger the issue you make of it, the bigger issue it becomes. So I'd play it down where possible. But in those situations where it does border on neglect, sending a child out in there, which, you know, where there's a clear health risk that they might do something, it's maybe about uh, warming him from the inside out in terms of his attire rather than the outside in. It's just maybe a tip that might work. But... Good luck with that. You know, as I say, uh, I have a 10-year-old who, who needs to be bribed into not wearing shorts despite whatever weather's outside. Um, no matter how many vests I buy my children, I still find them on the floor that they haven't put them on. And my mother's constantly saying that I'm not wrapping my children up warm enough. And I know from Catherine's own experience that uh, there's a flip-flop and slider family that would, you know, no matter what snow was outside, uh, her lads tend to be yeah. dressed lightly. But... Yeah, to give, her comfort, to give her comfort, I'm one who has survived to 17 with wearing shorts probably from February to December. We might get a month, although I, I don't even think they, he's even bothered with, uh, with I don't know whether he's bothered with long trousers at all this year, apart from his school uniform, but they survive. And uh, he just, he's quite happy and he says he doesn't feel the cold. The only thing I think is provide the stuff, you know, have the hats, have the scarves, have the gloves, have everything there. And, and leave it up to them because, you know, like with food, as you say, if they're hungry, they're eating. If they're cold, they'll put the stuff on, is my experience. And the more you fight with them, the more of a, a something something else to kind of hold or to, to battle over. It's not worth it. And Catherine, I don't mean to expose a parenting issue of your own, but I can remember on one occasion, maybe the said child was maybe 12 or 13 years of age where you rang in a panic because he had to wear jeans or something for something and he didn't own a pair. It was all tracksuits and shorts that he had. Oh, and you were yeah. kind of saying... <laughs> never, yeah, everything was elasticated. It was uh, stretch and elasticated and uh, yeah, nothing with buttons. It was all about comfort and his legs were always too warm. So yeah, and, and they still are. 
but he has he's quite he's sick he's over six foot and uh, physically very healthy so it hasn't done him any harm well there's some reassurance any other questions there yeah um this is about a a 12 year old daughter who's very difficult to motivate um even to try and get her out and her friends just prefers to to be on a device doesn't want to tidy your room which apparently they can't even walk through at, at times and you know there's a lot of nagging going on to try and get her to do that and just that lack of motivation she's the eldest of three and the other two are different even though this uh, this mom doesn't want to compare the children but just uh, is trying to avoid feeling like a nag and just get her to do a few a few activities yeah, it's a challenging one. I mean, I think in some respects, the there's a degree of teenage angst that is both necessary, unavoidable and inevitable uh, as children kind of hit that. And it, maybe they're, that's starting a little bit earlier. Remind me what age this child is? Twelve. Twelve. So, yeah, so she's right hitting that kind of phase in her life now, that kind of teenager. Some of that has to be understood uh, and empathized, but... I still would urge against making it okay. Uh, and I would have lines which shouldn't and, and can't be crossed. Uh, for example, you know, if somebody's hostile or they're angry or, you know, they're, they're kind of have a negative relationship with their siblings, you know, you can accept a degree of disgruntlement and a degree of annoyance, and they're not going to have necessarily an interest in younger children when they're, you know, they're too cool for that now. But I would draw a line under allowing that to get out of hand where there's any sort of mistreatment or where there's any, like, if you're a culture that doesn't allow swearing in your house, it's not, you know, teenage angst doesn't allow that to happen. You still have to hold the line with that. There still has to be a value system around. And maybe that value system is around teamwork. And, you know, we all have to clean up our own rooms or we have to do these things. The enabling of that is when people get whatever they need or want, despite not doing it. And, uh, you know, this is maybe old school parenting a little bit. But the sanction is that, you know, you you earn the things that you get and if you don't earn them you don't get them uh, and i think that becomes really difficult and again we're living in covid times so it's really hard to to sanction anything because nobody's really doing anything so there doesn't seem to be uh, a lot of leverage in terms of that but where i would say is you know you 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 sit down and say i'm compassionate to the fact that you're 12 and that you're becoming a teenager and that you think we're all useless and that you don't like hanging around with your sisters or brothers anymore and you think you know, we're dinosaurs and we don't understand. I get all that. And, you know, you're free to have your own privacy. You're free to have your own moodiness. And that's not. But when that starts to really negatively impact on the functioning and running of this house, then that's not OK. And that's when we need to address it. And it would almost be, you know, sitting down and, and, and kind of drawing up a few ground rules as teenage years start. And I know that people might be rolling their eyes thinking about this. This actually does work. It's about, you know, maybe not allowing it to evolve into something because it's much more difficult to wind it back when it has already existed. It's much uh, better advice to maybe start as you mean to go on. And I think as she's 12, you know, getting into 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 probably and up to about 20 you have another eight years of this to go so yeah i would i would start narrow and, and extend as we go but not without the compassion of understanding that teenage angst is a thing it doesn't make them bad kids they're not you know they're these children who can get angry and hostile and grumpy and you know non-verbal almost at times they're working that out they're working out who they are and they're working out and that's a very normal normal part of development and you know, I, I oftentimes say it, if your child is, is golden child and not saying anything and not using their voice at all, that has consequences too. So something about, you know, being able to be disgruntled and being able to communicate that is quite healthy. But again, it's within the parameters of what is acceptable within your own culture and your own home. And I would say really start tight on that. Uh, and I wouldn't be looking to address this when they're 16. Uh, as they're 12, it's now is the time to get that right. Uh, and it's really clearer to, to be able to say, look, I'm okay with you doing this and this and this, and I understand why you might do this, and I accept that this might happen from time to time, but this is where the line is, and this is what we need you to be, and this is how we need you to be when you're here. And, you know, it's about being explicit. So maybe a sit down, but I wouldn't be having this discussion when you're having the row. You know, no argument was ever resolved in an argument. Uh, this is not a point when everyone's annoyed and shouting and, and that's not the time. Maybe, you know, go out, get a, a coffee, a socially distant coffee, sit on a wall somewhere over the next while and explain 
the acceptance that this girl is growing up or that you know, she's different to her siblings now or that things are different as she's older or whatever the case may be. And these will be things that you understand will be part of her life. But just being clear about what is acceptable and what is not and being able to return to that conversation from time to time again and almost agreeing on a compromise. But you're the adult in the room. You have to start the conversation. She is not going to come to you with a set of terms and agreements and conditions. It is uh, it comes to you to, to, to set it out as as to how you want it to go. So, uh, yeah, sit down, chat in good terms when everyone's calm and just readdress it. And, and clarity would be the key, the key one on this one. OK, the last question then that's here today. This is somebody again who said that the podcast is answering a lot of questions that they've been mulling over for a long time. So they're finding it helpful. They have twin 10-year-old girls and one is really anxious about going to bed, um, about switching off appliances, worrying about the house going on fire, someone breaking in and doesn't want to be the last one to fall asleep. And this uh, lady and her husband are constantly trying to reassure their daughter, explaining about how smoke alarms and locked doors and everything works and encouraging them to read, which she says helps sometimes with the scary dreams. But the comment as well is that it's just this twin, the other the other girl is fine. And she said that it's hard to compare one with the other, but they're just looking for some advice as to how to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The twin dynamic is always fascinating, you know, because they can be so different. And there maybe always is a little bit of a, a more dominant and a more passive combination uh, the way they are. But in this girl's instance, this is a very, I would see this as kind of a rite of passage. I think a lot of children between the ages of eight and 11 will go through this kind of period of anxiety, which will oftentimes be nocturnal. It will oftentimes come around the sleeping, you know, when everything's being shut down, when they're distracted and keeping going, it's not so bad. This kind of normative level of anxiety is always a, and can oftentimes be around sickness, illness or safety. So it's something around permanency. So the locked uh, security alarms, the doors, the windows being being taken or somebody coming into the house is, is a common one or somebody becoming ill or sick or dying. And I think from some ways this is to be expected and you have to ride it out a little bit because the nature of it is so predictable that it's something that I do believe is maybe developmentally normative. In a COVID time, again, you know, these things are always going to be exponentially more difficult because there is these viruses and all these things. And, you know, I've heard lots of children becoming kind of consumed with sanitizing their hands and kind of keeping the, the things away. What happens is when we're anxious, we, we over control the variables that we can control. And so it's about trying to feel safer by ensuring that the things that we can do to be safe are done. So from the point of view of checking the locks, making sure the alarm is on, making sure that everyone that you're not the last one to go to sleep. This is kind of an environmental thing. Like, say, for example, if you had an interview the next day back in pre-COVID times where you're going, you might do a dry run to time how long it's going to take. You'll have your wallet, you'll have your keys, you'll have your suit out the night before. So you're going through these, trying to control all the variables that you can so that you don't leave as much up to chance. And that's a very common way in which we try and fend against anxieties. By And we saw this in the early parts of the, the pandemic when we all ran out and bought toilet roll. It was this kind of thing about, you know, I can control the variables that I can control. It'll make me feel better. The only difficulty is it's a gratifying sense of relief of anxiety. It doesn't fulfill us. It do, you know, each night you have to do the same material. And, and sometimes the management of anxiety can be worse than the anxiety itself. And I'll give you an example of, you know, if there's an, uh, an old lady who maybe somebody comes in and puts a banger through her letterbox on a Halloween night and, and kind of explodes in her hallway and burns her carpet, her way of managing that might be to sit inside the letterbox with a pot and a lid and, you know, sit there from five o'clock till 12 o'clock every night so that it doesn't happen again. And that might make her feel better because she's doing it. But then there's 365 days of the year that she's missing out on social interaction and she's missing out on her soaps and she's spending the whole time. So what we oftentimes do to make ourselves feel less anxious creates more anxiety in us, if that makes sense. And so you don't want the response to be worse than the ailment in that sense. And this is maybe where this is happening. So what I would be doing is trying to redirect this child's anxiety to find out where it is and where it's at. And she clearly has a little bit of a sensitive temperament. Again, you know, anxious children are deeper children. Uh, they're not soft, they're deep. And from the point of view of trying to kind of support her with that and, and acknowledge there's some strength in that is really important. 
But the reassurance is like pouring water into an empty bucket, a leaking bucket. It will just go, keep going and going. So you need to encourage her that you believe in her ability to manage. So, you know, the child that comes into you and says, there's a monster under my bed. When you say hop in here, you're basically saying there is a monster under your bed. What you need to do is return the child to their room, check under the bed and say, look, there's nothing there. I believe you can do this. You can sleep in your own room. You're great girl, you're fully able to do these things. And, and almost I trust that you can do it. And by doing that, you increase her own sense of self worth and self belief and self value, which is different to reassurancing or by, bypassing the, the stress and anxiety. So really trying to put her back to it. It's a labor intensive job. This bit is about sticking with it. But I have no doubt that in eight out of 10 cases, these cases of anxiety generally pass when whatever the origin of anxiety is better. And this is her way of communicating to you, saying, I'm worried about something. She has a temperament that maybe is, is a little bit anxious or hypersensitive. And so when she talks about being worried about intruders and things, she's just trying to put it into a language that she can understand and that you can understand. And it's a bit about being visible and knowing that she's being heard and being seen. So yeah, it's responding to the visibility issue, telling her that she's being well looked after and that you believe in her own ability to manage things because she's such a strong, clever, able and intelligent and, and capable person. Uh, and that's the stuff that you really need to be reassuring her of, as opposed to mommy and daddy will do this for you and will always do this for you because it's not about dependency, it's about independence and trying to encourage her own self-value, self-worth and self-belief. The three things that we need to protect most of all, self-value, self-worth, self-belief. And I hope that's helpful. Okay. That's great. That's that's all the questions for today. Fantastic. And I just want to tell people that next Listener's Questions episode, I have uh, Jen Hogan from the Irish Times who will be joining me for Listener's Questions. And uh, we will be, there's some questions around homeschooling and things like that that came in this week that I'm going to hold off until we speak to Jen about that because she has considerable experience around that. Next episode will be out on Wednesday next. Uh, we'll have our celebrity interview next week. And if you have any questions that you want to get in for myself and Jen Hogan, please get them into at askingforaparent at gmail.com or uh, our Twitter, Instagram and Facebook pages. And I want to say thank you so, so much to my sister, Catherine Sharkey, for giving away her time this afternoon to, to help me with the, the episode today uh, and to wish you all well. I hope you're all doing well in lockdown three and, and everyone's getting through it OK. And if you have any questions, get them into us and we'll answer them in the next episode. That was myself and Catherine Sharkey going through your questions for this week. Some really important questions were brought up today about managing panic attack, childhood anxiety, and managing ourselves, which is an important factor. As we manage our children, we try and support them. We really do have to look after ourselves through all of this. And it's not selfish or indulgent, it's just common sense. And so from the point of view, I give you all permission to do a bit of self-care this week, to try and structure some time for yourselves, to try and manage it. And again, you know, when we have our car we service it you know when we, we look after things that we need and your children need you so you need to look after you in these difficult times but i hope you enjoyed that episode and we have a great episode coming up for you this wednesday so stay tuned for that but until then stay safe take care and bye for now